Okay, we are live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Derek Gilbert, and we talked back in 2019 about his book titled Bad Moon Rising, Islam, Armageddon, and the Most Diabolical Double Cross in History. Fascinating book about Islam. Highly recommend that book. But he is having another book. He's a prolific author. One book is coming out at the very beginning of next year. The title of this new book is The Second Coming of Saturn. The Great Conjunction, America's Temple, and the Return of the Watchers. So again, that'll be out January 1st, 2022. And I'll list just a couple of his other books. You know how many books he's written. He's written The God Conspiracy, 2009. The Great Inception, Satan Psyops from Eden to Armageddon, 2017. The Last Last Clash of the Titans, The Second Coming of Hercules, Leviathan, and the Prophesied War Between Jesus Christ and the Gods of Antiquity, 2018. Also, The Day the Earth Stands Still, Unmasking the Old Gods Beyond ETs, UFOs, and the Official official Disclosure Movement, a fascinating book, which I've read. Yeah, you wrote that with Josh Peck in 2018. And then Giants, Gods, Dragons, Exposing the Fallen Realm and the Plot to Ignite the Final War of Ages, 2020. And then Veneration, I think, was his last book titled Veneration, Unveiling the Ancient Realms of Demonic Kings and Satan's Battle Plan for Armageddon. But again, we're going to talk about this book, title of it, if you see it on YouTube is The Second Coming of Saturn. It has a beautiful book title. It's actually a very well laid out book, but uh, I'm delighted to have Derek Gilbert. So Derek, welcome to the show. William, it's an honor to be here. Thank you. I, I, I really appreciate your research and your work. So it's an honor to have the opportunity to talk with you again on your program. Thank you. Well, likewise, I mean, this is a fascinating book. I feel like you had pictures of yourself in front of kind of uh, Agent Artifacts. It was almost like you were Indiana Jones and our Indiana <laughs> Jones. Kind of, I got that feeling because... There's a lot of information. I, you know, I'm fairly well read on kind of older history, but there's a lot of new stuff that you have uncovered. More recent, recent research that you're integrating into the book. But for people who may not have heard your name, can you talk about your background, your books, and what led you to write the Second Coming of Saturn? Well, it's a strange story. It, it just shows that God has a sense of humor because uh, I got into broadcasting in college, but as a uh, a top forty disc jockey. Um, because even though as a kid growing up, I wanted to be a talk show host, you know, my normal friends would listen to late night talk, top 40. I'd be listening to the all night talk show hosts. And uh, the thing, the problem is when you're coming out of college, the age of, uh, you know, 21, 22, nobody needs a talk show host that young because you don't know anything. So I wound up in top 40 radio for a number of years and uh, never really fit in. Just like in school, I was always the odd kid who never fit in, you know, it was the kid who always had his head in the book. And it, it, it is still that way. Um, so got out of broadcasting around uh, 1993, uh, got back in with my midlife crisis back in 2006, and then finally was able to do talk radio. But by that point, Sharon and I had married and we had begun our podcast, uh, PID Radio, which is one of the early podcasts on the internet. That was still when uh, uh, Apple was openly soliciting, hey, please send us the URL for your, your code because we want to fill up the iTunes store. So we started that in 2005 to market, we thought, to market our novels. But it turns out that God had a different idea. He actually got us podcasting to uh, help us to meet people who knew things that would lead us in certain directions of research. We were both interested in conspiracy theories and, and so forth. And so uh, early on, we started finding some of the early conspiracy podcast you and i before the program today talking about uh, from the grassy knoll uh with uh, visigoth who's really an internet broadcasting legend um there were others out there steve quayle on on shortwave uh we we got to know tom horn and then dr michael heiser 
this was, you know, all in the early days of PID radio. Um, and, and so through that research, we began to realize that the, the Bible, uh, that the apostles and the prophets had a different view of the Bible, of the world around them, rather, than we've been taught, the way the Bible's been taught to us. And uh, so that has just led to uh, a number of years of research, but uh, we, we had to, I get, guess, get properly seasoned before we were ready to actually jump into this. 2015, Tom Horn was looking to start Skywatch TV, asked if we would move to the Ozarks to partner with him. We were delighted to do it. Finally, I got an opportunity to use those talk radio skills that I'd hoped to develop. Uh, my, my stint in secular talk radio lasted about 18 months before I realized why I'd quit secular radio the first time and uh, went back into uh, steel sales, wound up selling steel for, uh, I've done that more than I've done anything else in my life, believe it or not. Um, but in 2015, we moved here to the Ozarks, became part of Skywatch TV. And uh, with Tom Horn, you're never slotted into one box and okay, this is what you're going to do and you're gonna do this forever, you know, edit video or uh, whatever. Uh, Hey, you can write. I know you can write. I've seen some of the stuff you've written. Do you want to write, you know, a chapter for this book? Do you want to write a book? And so ideas started coming as we began to research more things. And that led to my first book, The Great Inception, which was about the importance of holy mountains in the Bible or sacred mountains, uh, not just uh, say Mount Zion and Mount Sinai, but the mountains that were sacred to the pagans and especially to the, the gods that they worshiped. And it's important that we uh, point out right up front, and your audience is probably aware of this, that uh, in the Bible, there are, I mean, the Bible makes clear there are other gods besides capital G God or Yahweh of the Bible. Small G gods, these lesser Elohim, fallen angels, if you prefer, who um, are very active, were active then, are still active in the world today. Uh, that was the research of Dr. Michael Heiser and got us you know, on this track of researching things. When you begin to look at the, uh, the importance of mountains in the ancient world, mountains like uh, Mount Hermon, um, Mount, uh, Mount Zephon, which is the mountain that was sacred to the god Baal, and even artificial mountains like uh, the Tower of Babel, uh, you realize that almost every significant supernatural event in the Bible, uh, inflection points, if you will, in, in uh, supernatural history occurred at or near a mountain of some sort, and the final battle of the uh, the ages will take place at uh, Har Moed, which was transliterated into Greek and then back into English as Megiddo, which, no, it's not Megiddo. Har Moed means the Mount of Assembly, which is a phrase we see in Isaiah chapter 14, the passage about Lucifer and uh, his desire to establish his Mount of Assembly in the far reaches of the north. Well, anyway, uh, that's what kind of got this started. That and the weekly Bible study that Sharon and I started recording back in 2014. Uh, every week we go through the Bible for about an hour. We read through it verse by verse out loud. And we've discovered that when you read the Bible out loud, things suddenly jump out at you that you skip over when you're reading to yourself. And so that led to a number of other things. Uh, and uh, so, so far, looking at the thing on the wall here, eight books and counting, counting the ones that I've co-authored with Sharon. So, um, you know, the Holy Spirit has been very gracious in just helping us to see things and make connections. And God bless, not just in the Bible, but the archaeologists who are actually out there and digging things out of the sand in places like Iraq and Syria until their civil war started, Turkey, and uh, the linguists and the epigraphers who are translating and deciphering these ancient texts, because we just feel like it, it's kind of fallen on us, I guess, or maybe we've just been created uh, in a certain way or led to uh, uh, follow 
these clues and see the big picture and put all of these pieces of the puzzle that have been dug out by specialists in individual fields and, and make sense of the bigger picture. And, and that's you, what's uh, resulted in all of these books. I know. It's like, congratulations. It's amazing that you've had, had that much output in the relatively short time that you've been at Skywatch. It really is yeah. impressive. And you've traveled, I think, to the Holy Land every year, right? So you've been, you've been on there site. twice. Twice. Okay. Maybe. Yeah. Sorry. But you've no, been but to we, yeah, Aaron Lipkin, a friend of ours who we met through uh, Prophecy Watchers, because he comes over and speaks at their conferences. His father, Avi Lipkin, has been a very popular speaker at conferences and in churches here for many years. Uh, he has a tour company in Israel. And so he approached us and said, would you like to be uh, leaders of a tour? Sure. OK. And so we had the opportunity to go to uh, Israel in, in 2018. And uh, Steve Quayle invited us to go on the, the True Legends tour to uh, Italy and Sardinia to visit the tombs of the giants. And so it just happened to work out that we were able to go right from Israel to Rome and then Sardinia. So that uh, we compiled into a, a, about a three hour DVD of our, our adventures there. And then the following year, we were able to go back to Israel. Obviously 2020, 2021 with COVID, we've not been able to go back yet. We had hoped to go back early next year. That's not gonna happen because of uh, the mandate, the vaccine mandate for Israel. 2023, we think we'll be able to go back uh, that's our target at this point. But anyway, uh, that's still in flux. We haven't figured that out yet. But uh, we want to go back because there are some spots there, archaeologically speaking, that are just amazing. And the, the great thing about Aaron Lipkin is that he is just as much of a fan of archaeology as we are. So we've been able to go to Joshua's altar. I mean, literally, Joshua's altar, where he spoke those famous words, as for me and my house we will serve the Lord. And to catch that on video and to show people what this thing looks like uh, is just, it, it's an incredible blessing. I'm just, uh, <laughs> William, I got to tell you, every day I wake up, I'm astonished that I get to do this. And I think you mentioned that in our last interview, 2019. I think that's you ended it up. So it's almost like you're dusting off the history books and making them really present. That's what was the sensibility of reading your book. Um, can you talk, you kind of, your intro was about the Great Conjunction. Can you explain that to the listeners? That's how you start the book. Yeah, the Great Conjunction was the uh, event in the sky last December 21st. And interesting that it happened right on the winter solstice, where the planets Jupiter and Saturn met in the night sky. The media portrayed this as the, the Christmas star. And so we go into that a, in, a little bit in the book. It's not the Christmas star. I mean, I went outside and looked at it. We've got, we don't have a lot of light pollution where we are out in rural Missouri Ozarks. So I got a really clear view of it that night. It's like, okay, two relatively bright points of light in the sky. I, I you know, maybe it's just me, but if I'm a wise man in ancient Persia, it's not going to be enough to make me want to make a three month trip across the Syrian desert. Um, there, there was something more supernatural about the actual Christmas star 2000 years ago, but astrologers looking at this conjunction, they've been waiting for it for a while. This was the closest visible conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn in uh, something like uh, 800 years, the 13th century. Now, in the 17th century, Johannes Kepler, who was the famous astronomer, suggested he's the one who kind of came up with the idea, hey, this must have been the Christmas star that everybody got excited about. No. What excited astrologers, however, is that they met uh, Saturn and Jupiter at zero degrees of the constellation Aquarius, which officially moved us fully into the age of Aquarius. You know, 50 years after the Fifth Dimension song, we're finally in the age of Aquarius. 
And Aquarius, the sign, is ruled by Saturn. So astrologers see this as signifying the, the beginning of a new age, an age ruled by Saturn, an age of reason and hard work and, uh, and a return to a golden age, which ties into the poem written by the Roman poet Virgil around the year 40 BC, the fourth eclogue, which uh, drew on the, the, the ages of man from the Greek poet Hesiod, who was uh, roughly contemporary with the prophet Isaiah, 8th century BC, um, where mankind, humanity has gone through a, a golden age when Kronos ruled in heaven. Kronos is just the Greek counterpart or the Greek uh, name for the god Saturn. Uh, then that was followed by a silver age where things were not quite as good. And then there was an, a, a bronze age where things were really tough and vicious. And now we're living in an iron age ruled by Jupiter, Zeus, where the gods are cruel and they make life difficult, but a golden age is returning when the return of old Saturn's reign will bring with it a new breed of men sent down from heaven. Anyway, that's Virgil's take on all of this. But astrologers are looking at this as well and seeing this as signifying a great shift in the heavens where now the rule of Jupiter, who was the ruling deity of Rome, has now been handed back to the one that he threw off the throne, his father Saturn. Now, you and I, William, and you know Christians generally, we understand that our, our futures, our fates are not decreed by the movement of the planets in the sky, but there are some very wealthy and very prominent people, uh, powerful people in this world who do believe that. And I believe that this connection uh, between uh, the Great Conjunction, last winter solstice, the move into the age of Aquarius, and uh, the World Economic Forum's push for a great reset, this new globalist drive for a global economy, a global government is not coincidental. Right. It's incredible timing when all that stuff kind of comes together. So what, what in your book, what do you do your next step from the great conjunction? Then you kind of go back to show how far back in history, some of these, at least the concept of Saturn uh, existed, right? Yeah. Um, it, it struck me and the reason I started out down this road in the first place, and then when I realized that we were coming up on this great conjunction, that the time to write the book was was now, and it's it's coming out a year after the great conjunction. If I had a better sense of timing, we would have put this out a year ago. But be it a, be that as it may, it, it struck me that if we understand as Christians the importance of the event that took place on Mount Hermon in the distant past, the the rebellion of the sons of God in Genesis chapter six, that story uh, which is expounded on in the non canonical, extra-biblical book of Enoch, uh, the, the leader of this group of rebels, the chief of the watchers who, who rebelled, is named Shemiyaza. And it always struck me as odd that um, he just sort of drops out of history uh, in the book of Enoch after those uh, rebellious watchers are, are sent down to the abyss. Um, but we know from a couple of different ancient traditions that there are a group of supernatural entities there is a group of supernatural entities that certainly that is currently confined in the abyss. In the Greek mind, it, these were the Titans, the old gods of the ancient world. Again, Kronos, the leader uh, who ruled over a golden age, then overthrown by his son Zeus, Jupiter to the Romans, um, and confined in, in Tartarus, which was believed to be as far below the uh, as far below Hades as the Earth is below heaven. Now, in the Jewish mind. There is a another. There is a, a, a likewise a group of supernatural rebels who are confined in a special place in the underworld. We see this in Second Peter two verse four, where Peter writes, "For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them 
into hell. Now, that's the English word, but the Greek word is Tartarosus. In other words, they, he cast him into Tartarus. This is not the same as Hades, and Peter chose that word deliberately. It's, uh, deliberately. it's the only place in the New Testament that word is used. So we know from the Bible that there is a group of angels, supernatural entities, confined in Tartarus. Why? Because of a sexual sin. When you read the rest of 2 Peter chapter 2, and uh, the parallel verses really in Jude, chapter or verses uh, 7, 8, and 9, you see that the sin of these uh, rebellious angels is uh, sexual. Well, the only place we know of anything like that happening is in Genesis 6, where the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were fair and took wives of any they chose. Um, and you read in other Enochian literature, other Second Temple period literature, it was pretty clear that Jewish, that Jewish religious thinkers understood that that's who was being referred to. So Peter and Jude were familiar with the book of Enoch and other literature like it and understood that it referred back to Genesis chapter 6. So we make this equation then. The watchers of the Hebrew uh, religion, the watchers of Hebrew religious thought were equivalent to the titans of Greek and Roman religious thought. Therefore, it struck me as a, a good theory anyway. The evidence seems to suggest that Kronos of the Greeks, Saturn of the Romans, same entity, would be the leader of the watchers of the Hebrew tradition, Shemiyaza. So Shemiyaza equals Saturn equals Kronos. And then I go through the, uh, the history of the ancient Near East and show that they're in almost every single major culture in the ancient Near East. Now, I didn't dig deeply into Egypt, and that's mainly because I've not studied Egyptian cosmology much, but every one of the, the Semitic and um, Indo-European religions in the ancient Near East there was a god that corresponded to that uh, that entity, Saturn, Kronos. The Phoenicians called him Baal, Haman. The Canaanites called him El. The Amorites called him Dagon, as so did the Philistines. The Hittites and the Hurrians called him Kumarbi. The Assyrians called him Asher. He was their chief deity. And there were a number of other names. The Ammonites had a, a, an epithet for Milcom, which the Hebrews then uh, twisted into Molech. All the same entity just with different names. Right. I mean, that's, you can go and see some of these correspondences between all old world history and how the gods are the same. Most of the people in the West know the similarities between Greek and Roman, but not going back into the pre, you know, beginning of history, really, in the Near East. But, uh, I mean, you go really far back. Like, you talked about some group that I had never even heard of, which is the... Her, uh, the Hurrians. Yeah, Hurrians, yeah. Can you talk about them? They were really important, and I've got to give credit to my wife, Sharon, for putting me onto the Hurrians. She pointed me to research. She was looking for doing some research for her series of novels, the Red Wing, uh, the Red Wing Saga, and, and she found, um, stumbled across the work of a husband and wife archaeologist team from UCLA, Giorgio and Marilyn Kelly Bucciolati. And they've been working at a site in northern Syria since the late 80s, early 90s, uh, a site called Tel Mozan. But in the ancient world, it was called Urkesh. Now, they've not been able to get back in there since 2011, sadly, because of the Syrian civil war. They can't cross the border from Turkey to get in there, uh, which is sad because you can see the Turkish border from this site. That's how close it is. But as they excavated it, they found that this was a uh, the earliest known urban center, the earliest known city constructed by this group of people called the Hurrians. Now, scholars argue, were they Indo-European? Were they not Indo-European? We don't know. 
their language is unique. It's not related to Semitic. It's not uh, Sumerian. It's uh, similar in some sense to the ancient Urartian language, which is similar in some cases to Armenian. So there may be some connections there. We don't know. What they do know is that the Hurrians, um, around the time of the Exodus, had a very powerful kingdom in mainly the Kurdish regions in northern Syria and northern Iraq, the kingdom of Mitanni. If you were to look at the main world powers of the ancient Near East at that time, you'd have the Hittites in the northwest, you'd have the Mitanni in the north, you'd have Egypt in the south, and what was left of Babylon in the, kind of the southeast. So Mitanni was on an equal footing at that time with Egypt and the Hittite empire, and uh, th that was the Hurrian people. But their history according to the Buchelades at Urkesh, extends back at least to about 3500 BC, which is much older than anyone expected to find a developed, civilized setting in northern Mesopotamia. We've all been taught that civilization in ancient Mesopotamia began in Sumer in the south at Ur and Uruk and Eridu. But this city was contemporary with all of those and it had a temple sitting on top of a raised mound about 90 feet off the ground you know, above the plain around it. So it was visible from miles away. And the style of the temple that they've excavated is very similar to what you find in ancient Uruk, which is really intriguing because 3,500 BC, that'd be right smack in the middle of the time window when you would put the kingdom of Nimrod at Uruk. So you've got a kingdom in Northern Mesopotamia, contemporary with Nimrod's Uruk, building a temple similar to what you'd find in Uruk. But the God to whom that temple was built, according to the Buchelades, was the chief God or the creator God of the Hurrians, Kumarbi. Well, they take this even further back because they found a unique style of pottery there. This is a very distinctive style that scholars have connected to a, an older civilization called the Kura Araxes civilization, which uh, between, say, 4500 BC and about uh, 2200 BC occupied a broad swath at the northern edge of the Fertile Crescent. So if you look at the Mesopotamia, the Fertile Crescent, we've all heard about, you know, between the Tigris and Euphrates and extends around into what is now Israel. Uh, if you were to draw like a, an area just around the outer edge of that, that's where these Kura Araxes people had settled. Um, but their homeland, their original point of origin is, is why this is named Kura Araxes. Those are the rivers that run on either side of the Caucasus Mountains in Armenia. So in other words, this civilization which later wound up building its oldest known city in northern Syria, came from the plain of Ararat, the, the plain below the mountain where the ark landed, which blew my mind for a couple of reasons. But one being that they brought the worship of this entity with them to Urkesh. And the, the, the most distinctive feature of the worship of this god, Kumarbi, who again is just an early iteration of Enlil of the Sumerians, El of the Canaanites, Kronos of the Greeks, Saturn of the Romans, was a ritual pit that goes down about 45 feet. They've only been able to dig it out about halfway because they were concerned about the stability of the pit. They didn't want the walls collapsing and killing a, a workman or something. But apparently, and they've deciphered this based on ritual texts that have been preserved by the Hittite kingdom uh, which was about contemporary with the Exodus around the middle, of, say, 15, 1400 BC, that uh, this pit was used to go down into the earth, offer a sacrifice of uh, a, a lamb or a piglet or a puppy or something, and summon gods from the netherworld, from the underworld, and then ask for favors, and then they would send them back, and then they would ritually cover up the hole that they had dug in this pit. 
But again, this pit goes down 45 feet. The reason they only dug down about 22 feet is because uh, there's another 22, 25 foot of um, uh, debris from their sacrifices. This was a regular thing. Summoning gods from the netherworld. It's like, hmm, okay. And then we discovered that this, uh, according to the Bucciolatis, they, uh, comparing this to the texts of the Hurrian religious traditions preserved by the Hittites, again, 2,000 years later, the name of this pit was the Abi, A-B-I. And then I was able to connect this with other research, just amazing stuff from uh, linguists and other archaeologists showing that the Abi of the Hurrians the Hurrians in northern Mesopotamia was where we get the word, or the Sumerians rather, got the word Abzu, which is uh, the, the, the freshwater ocean beneath the temple of the god Enki at Eridu. And that's where we get the word abyss. So the idea of the abyss comes from the Hurrians, not the Sumerians. And furthermore, the Abi is the origin of the Hebrew word Ov, which generally in our Bibles is translated into the word medium. So when uh, Saul went to visit the medium of Endor the night before he uh, went to battle with the Philistines and died, where the, the medium summoned the spirit, she thought of her familiar, but the spirit of Samuel actually came up out of the earth. Um, that Hebrew word ov, translated medium, should more properly be translated ritual pit. So the ov that that uh, Saul went to visit was actually the owner of one of these ritual pits, which she used to summon, summon and Samuel. surprise. Yeah. Summon Samuel. She didn't expect to see Samuel, which is why when you read that account in uh, the book of first Samuel, uh, she cried out with a loud voice. She wasn't expecting to see actually Samuel, but you know, there he was, but just like the ancient, and we're talking about now, by the time of Saul going to visit the Ove, the owner of the ritual pit at Endor, that practice, based on the archaeology, uh, the archaeological work of the Bucciolatis, is at least is about 2,500 years old. That practice, and because they traced the pottery back to the plains of Ararat at least a thousand years before that, we can document this practice of summoning entities from the netherworld to the plains of Ararat almost 5,000 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, and you show that. And also, like, your book gives context to the Bible, the Old Testament, too. So you can see the practices of these ancient civilizations. And you said they're, like, very common to, like, ancestral worship and, and contacting spirits. So you see this kind of things put up again uh, against it, to all the way to the Witch of Endor. So that practice goes 2,000 years up to uh, the time of Saul. It's really incredible. Mm -hmm. And you also talk about, like, uh, you know, there's portals. So they were very kind of spiritist, these old civilizations in the Near East, right? Absolutely. They had a very different world view than, than we do today. And we in the Western church especially have uh, lost the worldview of the prophets and the apostles. Well, they understood that the world around them, the unseen realm, to borrow the title from Mike Heiser's book, was full of entities that were very active. It's just that the Hebrew prophets and the apostles understood that we're not supposed to talk to them. This is why God gave Moses that instruction. Do not consult with necromancers. Do not consult with mediums or the owners of ritual pits because these spirits will lie. They will deceive you. They will draw you into practices that are forbidden because those entities wanted to destroy the bloodline of the coming Messiah. That was the long game. And suddenly the Old Testament, when you see it in that context, the Old Testament begins to make a lot more sense. God is not just this uh, genocidal 
a psychopath who just randomly picks one guy out of northern Mesopotamia. Abraham, here, you come with me. Your, your descendants are all going to be blessed. And everybody else who gets in your way, I'm just going to slaughter them indiscriminately. No, there's a war going on in the unseen realm between these fallen Elohim and the people that God has chosen. And uh, he's trying to protect them. The, the way Sharon and I describe this in our Bible study is it's, it's the law that God gave Moses and these prohibitions against contacting the spirits in the spirit realm is sort of like a parent telling a three-year-old, now stay in the yard, do not go near the street, do not play in the street. And if the child disobeys, in order to help them understand the message, sometimes you have to um, make it painful. You have to spank in order to deliver the message. Uh, it's not that you're trying to stop that child from having a good time. It's you're trying to protect them from a threat that they do not understand. I think that's what's going on with us in the spirit realm. And that uh, the, the people around ancient Israel, the, the veneration of what they thought were their ancestors. And in our previous book, Sharon and I, uh, well, previous two books, Giants, Gods and Dragons and Veneration, we talk, uh, wrote uh, extensively about the practice of ancestor veneration, but they weren't the spirits of the ancestors. They were the, they were, there are spirits that are very active in the world around us, but uh, it was the common understanding. It was the default belief of the early church that those spirits, as we see in the book of Enoch, were the spirits of the giants destroyed in the flood, the spirits of the Nephilim destroyed in the flood. But that became a religion very quickly after the flood, as we see with uh, uh, the practice of ancestor veneration, the veneration of the Rephaim by the neighboring Canaanites. Uh, this has only been documented within the last 40 years with the translation of some texts from the uh, ancient Amorite kingdom of Ugarit, but also uh, with the, the, this work that uh, the, the Buchelatis have done at uh, Urkesh documenting this, this practice of the Hurrians. The Hurrians have been kind of the missing piece here and this ritual pit and then connecting that through the work of other researchers uh, to, to the Sumerians and the Abzu, the, the Akkadian Apsu, and the Hebrew Ove, all coming from that same origin point. And as uh, Dr. Judd Burton showed in a recent paper that he published just before, as I was in the editing process for the books, I was able to include that in the book as well. Um, the phoneme, the, the bit of language behind the word Rephaim in Hebrew is also behind the word for king or ruler in a number of Indo-Eurasian uh, languages. Let's put it that way, Eurasian languages. And he traces that back independently of the, the study I was doing to that same location between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. In other words, the plains of Ararat. It all began there as the people came down from the mountain. Hey, those old gods that we uh, knew about, that we heard about before the flood, uh, we can summon those. We can bring them back from the underworld, right? And, and that, so that practice began and has continued down to this day. We were talking to an evangelist over the weekend from uh, Singapore who was telling us about uh, how important ancestor veneration is in Asian cultures. And it's startling. It's startling how similar it is to the ancient Amorite practices uh, of 4,000 years ago. Right. It's like they're still there. Some of those cultures, they actually will bury their ancestors in their house or close to their house, talk to them every day. So they mm -hmm. talk, yeah, it's very much like this, what you include in your book. And also continuing with your theme of these old gods, you include the transfiguration of Christ on Hermon as a very crucial moment of his ministry. Can you elaborate on that? Sure. Uh, Mount Hermon was known in the ancient world as a, uh, as a significant location, even as far back as the time of uh, 
Abraham, the old Babylonian period, it was known to be uh, the, the secret dwelling of the Anunnaki. Um, the Canaanites believed that that was the, uh, the dwelling or the abode of El, where he held court with his consort Asherah and their 70 sons. And the 70 in the ancient Near East was a, a number that was symbolic. It represented all of them, the complete set. So in other words, however many gods there are in the world, they all came from El and they're all on Mount Hermon. So uh, that location towers above the ancient region of Bashan, which is a word that in the Ugaritic tongue means serpent. So it's literally the land of the serpent. Um, at the base of Mount Hermon is the grotto of Pan called Benias or Penias. Uh, it was believed to be the literal entrance to the netherworld. There was a, a god that was worshipped by the Canaanites called Rapayu, king of eternity. Rapayu is the singular form of Rephaim. And uh, as Sharon and I were re researching our book, Veneration, we found that um, as we, we looked at the locations of dolmen fields, D-O-L-M-E-N, dolmens are, are these uh, megalithic funerary monuments that are all over the Jordan River Valley from Mount Hermon to the Dead Sea. There are about 25,000 of these still around. Um, but there are so many between the Sea of Galilee and Mount Hermon that an Israeli archaeologist says we cannot call them dolmen fields any longer because you can't tell where one ends and the next one begins. In, in other words, the ancient land of Bashan was a giant necropolis. Dolmens everywhere. Uh, they found one, in fact, you know, the two slabs for the sides and then the capstone. The capstone on top of this, uh, it's near the kibbutz called the Shamir. They've estimated the weight of that capstone at 50 tons. 50 tons. They date this to about uh, 2000 BC, so just before the time of Abraham. Anyway, uh, so it was well known that this was an area that belonged to the dead, the honored dead. There, it's, it's, yeah, I, I've come across some, some stuff even since the book was published about uh, some uh, uh, Ugaritic uh, mythology or poetry that suggests that um, uh, that's where you would bury your honored dead so that they would become one with the Rephaim or they would join the, the assembly of the Rephaim in the afterlife. So it was not a coincidence when Jesus led the apostles there to Caesarea Philippi, which is Benias, Benias, the foot of Mount Hermon. And then we read in the gospel accounts that uh, not long after that uh, confrontation with Peter, where he asks him, uh, you know, who, who do you say that I am? Oh, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Ah, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, uh, because, you know, he had recognized this truth. And then Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church. And, you know, Roman Catholics interpret that as, ah, he means Petros, Peter. So Peter is the first pope. No, they were standing in front of a 9,000 foot mountain at, in, in front of the cave called the Grotto of Pan, believed to be the entrance of the netherworld. So when he said, on this rock, I will build my church, this rock behind me, which was the meeting place, the divine assembly for the Canaanite pagan pantheon meets here. On this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell, which are right over there, will not prevail against it. So we, on our tour of Israel, William, we had the opportunity twice now to go through that section of scripture right in front of the Grotto of Pan and point it out. And when people see it, this, this really big cave that used to be the source of the Jordan River, uh, it's changed with earthquakes over the years. People just gasp because they suddenly realize Jesus was speaking literally. He was speaking, yeah, metaphorically, but he was standing in front of this mountain that was known as the meeting place of the pagan gods. 
and the entrance to the netherworld was right over here. So, and then he climbs the mountain with Peter, James, and John, and he's transformed into a being of light. It's like Mike Heiser, you know, puts it. It's, he was like poking the uh, the spirit realm in the eye, or sending a flare into the spirit realm and saying, "Here I am," and oh yes, I am. Now, what are you going to do about it? And then when he comes down from the mountain. We read in the Gospel of Luke that he sends out 70 or, or 72 disciples. It depends on your translation, but numerically speaking, symbolically, that number means the same thing. It means all of them. Sends them out into Galilee ahead of him, and they come back and say, even the demons are subject to us in your name, which was Jesus sending another message to the spirit realm. My 70, my followers are more powerful than yours and a day is coming when they will replace you in the divine council. That was the, and, and it was from there that he then traveled to Jerusalem to complete his mission, which was, of course, the cross and the resurrection. But that was, it was like he had deliberately antagonized the spirit realm there on Mount Hermon, their territory, declaring his divinity there. Right. And then going yes. to Jerusalem, making them so angry that they couldn't help themselves. We, we is Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, First uh, Corinthians six, I believe. I'm gonna. I keep getting these two verses confused. I think it's verse six, verse eight, where he uh, says, um, "The rulers of the age, the archons of the age." And he's talking supernatural rulers, not politicians. If they had understood the mystery that God was revealing through the apostles and the prophets, they would not have crucified the Lord of Glory. They didn't understand that by sending Jesus to the cross, they were helping him fulfill his mission. And then, of course, from there, then he goes down and <laughs> it's, yeah, there's right. some so very, he, very interesting parallels between Mount Hermon and the Mount of Olives. Right. I mean, there's your mount, Mount Ararat, Mount Hermon, Mount of Olives, all these mounts right there is part of your theme of your book and your talk. But also you write in your book that uh, the first and second century after the resurrection of Christ, they believed in this kind of spiritual worldview that they were contesting against spiritual entities and paul writes about that in six ephesians 6 12 right exactly right and, and by the way that verse i was trying to reference before was first uh, corinthians 2 verses 6 through 8 first corinthians 6 verse 8 is for uh, 6 verse 3 is where we uh, we are told uh, that we're going to judge the angels someday which might be why some of these uh, angels are so upset with us but no for first corinthians 2 6 through 8 uh, but yes in ephesians 6 he makes it very clear we're not wrestling against human opponents we wrestle not against flesh and blood principalities, powers, cosmic rulers over this present darkness. He's talking about literal evil intelligences who want to destroy us. And the early church understood this. When you read, you know, find the writings of the early church fathers and you see what they wrote about demons and uh, the gods of their pagan neighbors, they understood what they were. Yes, the Greeks have their own gods, but they're just fallen angels. Demons, they're just the spirit of the giants that were destroyed long ago, proceeded from the Titans. They knew this. It wasn't until about the 5th century with Augustine that that changed. And I, I'm not really sure of his motivation for trying to get Christians away from that, uh, th that uh, literal understanding of, of Genesis chapter 6. But that is still the default teaching in um, most seminaries today. Most pastors coming out of seminary believe that the uh, sons of God in Genesis chapter 6 were just the righteous sons of Seth. The, the logical disconnect between why that would produce a monstrous race of giants you know, notwithstanding, for some reason, that still is what is taught about Genesis chapter six. When you understand that that's 
that underpins the whole supernatural war of the Old Testament. That's the reason that um, Isaiah writes about the, uh, uh, you know, other lords have ruled over us, Isaiah 26, beginning at verse 13. But your name alone we call to remembrance. They are dead. They will not live. They are Rephaim. They will not arise. In, in uh, Isaiah 57, Isaiah 65, condemning those who sacrificed to the dead. The reason that God sent a plague that killed 24,000 Israelites as they camped on the plains of Moab before they crossed over the Jordan to attack Jericho, when they started worshiping the Baal of Peor. And we showed in our book, Veneration, that uh, Peor is based on a Hebrew root that means uh, opening or cleft or get like opening to the netherworld. And I go into that too, because I think Baal Peor may just be another title for this entity, Saturn, Kronos, Shemiyaza. God sent this plague because he was angry, according to Psalm 106, verse 28, not just that they were worshiping the Baal of Peor, but because they were eating sacrifices offered to the dead. This was a snare and a trap that lured in the Israelites from the time that they camped in the plains of Moab, 1400 BC or thereabouts, to the time of Isaiah, 700 BC, 700 years. The Israelites continued this practice. As we showed in the book Veneration, this continued into the early church. When Constantine built the first church in Rome after he legalized the faith, St. Peter's Basilica is one of these churches. It was built right in the middle of a cemetery because the early Christians wouldn't give up the ritual practice of summoning their dead ancestors to a meal. So they couldn't beat them. So they, okay, we'll just put the church here in the, in the cemetery so that the, the folks can just come to church and then they can go outside and have a picnic. It's, wow, it's astonishing. And it continues, like I said, it continues all over the world to this day, day of the dead in Mexico. <laughs> it's, right. it's the same thing. But I think it's important because it explains a lot of the old yearbook puts in context a lot of the conflicts that happened in the Old Testament with the tribes that were surrounding the Israelites, where the temptations there, Jezebel and people backsliding and coming back was that there was these other practices that were not uh, allowed by God, by right. you know, the Hebrew God. And so that's really kind of like what you can see in this ebb and pull of, of the society back then up until Christ. I mean, there's a lot more in your book. We're at about 42 minutes. I mean, can you just say <laughs> we've only covered a bit? There's a lot more information here, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't even gotten to the present time. We haven't talked about Enlil as much, Damien Eccles. I mean, uh, oh, yeah. I mean, the, bro the Brotherhood of Saturn. Yeah, there's, there's a Saturn, lot of stuff. The religion of Saturn. Right. I mean, a lot of that stuff. And you can kind of see, actually, the old discussion that we had, the old book, Bad Moon Rising, kind of ties into some of that stuff, too, right? Yeah, it does. And, uh, you know, I was slapping my forehead after I turned in the manuscript and it was too late to change things again, because I had argued in Bad Moon Rising that the uh, the origin of the name Allah comes from the Akkadian uh, Al-Elah, meaning the God. But uh, as scholars have pointed out, I, and I somehow didn't make this connection. These facts were just kind of floating around disconnected in my head. Um, the name Enlil of the Sumerian god Enlil was believed for a long time to be based on Sumerian words En meaning Lord and Lil meaning, you know, ether. So he's the Lord of the ether. But more recently, scholars have said, you know, that really doesn't fit. We don't see any other evidence, any other nicknames for him that would indicate that that's how he was thought of in the uh, Sumerian world. They believe that Enlil was introduced into Sumer from the north, which kind of fits with my theory that the Hurrians actually were more influential in history than we've been taught, uh, that Enlil was brought into Sumer by the Akkadians, and that in Akkadian, their word for God is ill, very similar to Canaanite El, 
same word, different language, that Enlil is not Enlil, it is Il Ilu, meaning God of gods. So Il Allah, Il Ilu. It's essentially, I would argue now, if I were to write Bad Moon Rising today, that Allah is actually the same guy here, just by a different name. Yes, he still has influence in the world today through his demonic children who are still active in the world, probably, apparently, still in contact with Daddy and uh, Daddy's minions who are in chains in darkness, according to Peter and Jude, but still working their plans on this earth and looking forward to a return. And I argue in the book that uh, this entity, this chief of the watchers condemned to the abyss, if he is Kronos of the uh, the Titans, the king of the Titans, likewise in Tartarus, that he is the most likely candidate for the king over those in the pit in Revelation 9, the entity called the destroyer, Abaddon in Hebrew, Apollyon in Greek, that they're all one and the same. Wow, it's incredible. It would make sense, though, if the if that was Islam, that same entity, because at the Kaaba, it's the, it's the square of Saturn, which you right. still see in modern temples modern like corporate offices and things like that it's all over so a lot right. of that stuff uh you know history is not that far past or present and i mean no. that, that sorry good no it, it absolutely it, it fits together and and so we get it there's some prophecy here in the book as well that again uh making my case that i believe he's the destroyer uh that's another connection with the, the mount of olives and uh, uh some interesting research that I, I stumbled onto there um so uh you, know, you can only scratch the surface. This, in terms of the research, I think, thanks to Sharon, first pointing me onto the uh, the city of Urkesh and the significance of the Hurrian people in the ancient world. Uh, they're in the Bible as the Horites, so it's not like these are, are people who didn't have any influence in Scripture, and I dive into that uh, pretty deeply in the book. But uh, also pointing me to what happened at the, the United States Capitol on January 6th, and the significance of the art and architecture there. I hadn't intended to go there when I started with the book. Tom Horn has covered that extensively in Apollyon Rising 2012, Zenith 2016, Zeitgeist 2025. And he's got a new documentary out that uh, Skywatch TV is offering now at skywatchfilms.com called The Secret uh, Destiny of America. Um, but I take what Tom has done and I add a different, slightly different twist to it. Tom is of the opinion that Apollyon and Apollo are the same and that that is the Antichrist. Um, I argue that Antichrist is Leviathan, chaos, and that this spirit, Apollyon or Abaddon, is different from Apollo. Sharon and I argued in Giants, Gods, and Dragons that Apollo is the rider on the white horse, the first rider of the apocalypse, that Saturn, Shemiyaza, Kronos, Baalhamon, Dagon, Enlil, whatever you want to call him, he is the destroyer. And that the art and architecture of the United States Capitol shows, I think, his intention, which is his return to what he thinks is his rightful place in the heavens, and that that's what's represented by the apotheosis of Washington. Um, you know, I don't disagree with Tom Horn very often, and I think without his foundational research, I would never have gotten there. But then Sharon pointed me to the January 6th incident, which was led by the guy wearing the buffalo hat, the, what was it? The QAnon shaman? The QAnon shaman. Yeah, his, shaman, his uh, call, calls himself Jacob Angel Angeli, Angel E. Like, okay, it's really Jacob Chansley, but Jacob Angeli, who's just been sentenced to forty months in prison, which is ridiculous. <laughs> but setting that aside, the fact that this took place on January sixth, which was Epiphany in the Christian calendar, 
celebrating the day that Christ's divinity was revealed to the world when the three wise men, you know, it's, it's the 12th day of Christmas, okay? Epiphany in the Western church, theophany in the Eastern church, the day when the divinity of Christ was recognized, that's the day that this building called America's Temple by some of our most prominent politicians was invaded by a guy wearing a buffalo hat. And I have written extensively elsewhere about the significance of buffalo horns. In fact, Kronos, his very name is derived from a Semitic word meaning horns, the wow. horned one. Now he, he's back. He did some kind of chaos magic ritual. Do you know that? I have no doubt. Yeah, he did a chaos magic. I talked to people in the occult. He was doing something uh, having to do with magic in there. I don't know the total details. I, I need to get more info on that. But That uh, is very significant because chaos, Leviathan, is, we believe, Antichrist. And we believe that, uh, so we've got several entities at work here. We've got uh, Jupiter, Zeus, Baal, who Jesus identified as Satan, is a major player in the end times, obviously. Satan stands on the shore of the sea, end of Revelation 12, Revelation 13. The beast emerges from the sea. We argue that's Leviathan. And then Revelation 9, of course, you've got the five-month period where Apollyon Abaddon is out with all of his minions, the Titans, the Watchers, if you will, tormenting humanity. Interesting that it's a five-month period because when you go back to Genesis chapter 8 and 9, look at the amount of time that the ark was on the water before it landed in the mountains of Ararat. 150 days. In a lunar calendar, a 30-day lunar month, that's exactly five months. That's not a coincidence. This book ends. These entities were put into the abyss during the flood. They will get out at the end, and those without the seal of God in their foreheads, they will get five months to torment. But that's how long old Saturn's reign will last. And can you, before we wrap this up, can you talk about that sequence with uh, Damien Eccles? It's really incredible because it coincides with your research. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I um, stumbled onto uh, his, uh, his most recent book. And, and forgive me, I don't have the, uh, let me bring this up here real quick. So I'm not speaking from uh, ignorance. Well, I I his, uh, he's got a new book out there in which he's talking about his um, new uh, discovery where he is now summoning entity, this, this entity from the underworld. And he realized, uh, after this, this entity filled him with, uh, with, with light, it's called his new book is angels and archangels. And, uh, he believes that the key to unlocking the secrets of the paranormal is to summon angels. But this angel he believes is the most powerful one he's ever encountered. And, uh, he believes that uh, based on this revelation that he received, that this entity that he has been, that has empowered him to do magic far beyond anything he's done before is Enlil. Well, again, Enlil was just another name for this entity. Now, was he really empowered, indwelt by Enlil? If this entity is chained in the abyss, as Peter and Jude write, probably not, but it may well be a spirit, a demon, acting on behalf of Enlil or just, you know, lying to him and saying, oh yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm totally Enlil. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. that ticket. Don't know. Don't know. But I think it's interesting that at this period of time, when we are now in the age of Aquarius, since last winter solstice with Jupiter handing the baton back to old dad, Saturn, Saturn, Kronos, Baalhamon, El, Dagon, Enlil, that now we've got one of the most prominent practitioners of magic with a K, Damien Eccles, saying, ah, I found the secret. We have to summon Enlil. It's incredible. 
the only two people I've heard talk about that entity is you and him. That and you, I think we mentioned maybe in the last interview or somewhere in the interim. But uh, it is remarkable. And he, I think he said the resultant energy I experienced was unlike anything I'd ever felt, even after years of intense angel work. Enlil's presence was like feeling the unified power of a thousand angels. And by the way, this uh, book is very thoroughly quoted, so you can see where Derek has done all his research. Like this is quote. This is a footnote 500 or 497 right here so <laughs> you can see where his research goes this is very exhaustively academically uh research book is there anything you'd like to add Derek, or anything i missed before we wrap it up i mean yeah, there's so much more in this book we covered 10 percent of the book Please, i, I find, uh, well no I, I just find this subject really fascinating but i, I just want to i i hope that readers will take away from this the sense that um the, the spiritual war, the supernatural war that we're a part of is more real than, than most of us have been taught. Um, I, I've, I've met people who have experienced the supernatural firsthand. And for them, they know, they understand. In fact, uh, this uh, gentleman that I, I mentioned earlier, this uh, evangelist we spoke uh, to over the weekend, uh, uh, Dr. James Tan from Singapore, is, uh, was, was tormented by uh, demons at a very early age. And, and so he understood from very early on that the supernatural realm is real and that it does influence us in the natural realm. But most of us, myself included, don't have that kind of sight into the spirit realm. So for me, it can become an academic exercise. I think these texts and, and you know, fitting the pieces together is fascinating. But I hope I've brought it back around to show that not only does this have an influence on the world today, that it fits with what we read in Bible prophecy. And I, I will never claim that I've got all the answers as far as end times prophecy, because God hasn't revealed everything yet. He's the greatest general in the history of creation. He's not going to reveal his total battle plan until he's standing across the battlefield with the enemy. Uh, then we will see in full. Now we see only in part. Here is how I see it uh, in this book and the other books that we've written. Uh, to the best of my understanding right now, I reserve the right to be wrong. And I will admit as much. Um, like I said, even during this interview, you know, if I had uh, put some pieces together, I would have uh, written Bad Moon Rising slightly differently than I did just uh, four years ago, three years ago. But the bottom line is that this fits with where we're going in terms of end time prophecy. The enemy takes it very seriously. And there are minions here on earth who either wittingly or unwittingly are working to bring about the return of this golden age they see or they believe will occur when Saturn returns. It's just they don't understand his true nature because he lies. When he returns, it will not be a golden age. If I am correct in seeing this entity as the one called by John the destroyer, Abaddon or Apollyon, it will literally be hell on earth when he returns. Now, you don't need to be here when that happens. I think we as the church will be out of here. Even if we're not, though, we will have the seal of God on our foreheads, and so they won't be able to touch us. But our friends, our family members, our coworkers, people that we meet at Walmart, the grocery store, we don't know whether they're going to be here or not, or their children or our grandchildren. So we need to be, we need to feel a sense of urgency about what is happening in the spirit realm around us. Not to be afraid. We don't, we're not given a spirit of fear because we know greater is he that is on, in us than he that is in the world. I just see the church, because I know how I was raised in church every week. This stuff would have been considered fringe, woo. We don't maybe you'll be happier at the church down the street. This is what the early church understood about the world around them. 
Now, maybe I don't have all the pieces together right, but I hope I'm at least recapturing the supernatural worldview of the apostles and the prophets who understood that their world, the world beyond the limits of human sight, is far more complicated and far more dangerous than we've been taught. But we have the shepherd right behind us. And if any of those enemies wants to get busy with us, just, hey, talk to the shepherd because he's got my back. That's what I hope you readers will take away from the book. Yeah, it's interesting stuff. I love the history. I love the archaeology. But it's all about this long war that we're a part of and uh, just trying to make it real for readers so that we in the church understand why Jesus Christ did what he had to do, why he had to do what he did. It wasn't a tragedy. It was necessary. It's tragic in that our sin made it necessary. But it wasn't a random act. It wasn't a rebel being put to death by the Romans because he was a political threat. It was a necessary sacrifice to redeem us from the likes of these pagan gods. That's what this whole war is about. Awesome. That's a great way to finish. Where's the best way to uh, get the book, The Second Coming of Saturn, Dirk? It's uh, available at Amazon. should be available really soon. As you can see, I actually have a physical copy here. So those yes. were shipped out to Amazon last week. So hopefully they will be there, if not already, that within a couple of days. Uh, the Kindle version won't be out until January 1st. Tom always likes oh, to put okay. the physical copies out there for a while before releasing the Kindle version. Uh, but the book is uh, at Amazon. And since it's in the warehouse, it should be at the Skywatch TV store soon. I just don't know whether they've got a, uh, uh, a bundle for it yet. In fact, I know they don't because I... I <laughs> committed to producing a, a, a DVD, which I'm going to start working on this, uh, this weekend, uh, a series of probably 13 videos of about 20 to 30 minutes in length each that kind of breaks the book down into bite-sized chunks. Because I know that, you know, in this 45 minutes, we've, we've kind of, it's been like a fire hose. Um, and hopefully that will be a way to introduce the topic, especially to people. Because when you, I, I've learned that when you hit people with this all at once, people who've grown up in the church and think that they're really well-read when it comes to scripture and are well-read, but maybe just not interpreted, you know, not, it, if you skip over the Genesis 6 paradigm, you miss a lot of the significance of what's happening in the Bible. Or, or if you've grown up being taught that there is only one God and yeah, we kind of believe in Satan, but demons, that, that was, you know, before we discovered psychology, um, and then you try to explain this stuff to them all at once. It, it's like, okay, you're 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 not well. Hopefully, by breaking it down into small bite-sized pieces, we can uh, uh, introduce this in, in a way that's not as intimidating or doesn't come across as quite as crazy. Um, so anyway, that will be probably what be, we'll probably wait on that at the Skywatch TV store until I get that video done. Hopefully, in the next month or so. Um, but uh, in the short term, uh, Amazon has got it, uh, all major bookstores as well. Okay, so I didn't see, I mean, I misunderstood because I looked at Amazon today and I saw that it was being published on January 1st, so I was incorrect. I'll go back and change that, and I'll put a link in the show notes too to the Skywatch store if people want to buy it there. And where, do you have a, a website, Derek, if people want to reach out to you? What's the best way to do that? Well, Sharon and I uh, kind of use Gilbert House uh, the Gilbert House Fellowship, our website for our weekly Bible study is sort of our hub. Uh, so gilberthouse.org, gilberthouse.org. And, uh, you know, there you'll find links to our websites and our books. But uh, we also there every Sunday, we post another hour, hour and 15 minute Bible study as we just go through the Bible verse by verse. Uh, like I said, we've discovered when you read it out loud, things jump out at, the, out at you that you never noticed before. 
Right. So I'll put that also in the in the show notes as well. Again, the title. Yeah, sure. And the title of the book is The Second Coming of Saturn, The Great Conjunction, America's Temple and the Return of the Watchers by Derek Gilbert. Derek, thanks so much for your time. No, my honor. Okay, cool. Stay there. All right. That was excellent. Okay.